Welcome to Vermont Movement News, Volume 3, Episode 5. Today, today we are taking a break from our discussions with educators to talk with Margaret Elizabeth, the co-chair of the Green Party Lavender Caucus and a co-chair of the Green Party of the U.S. itself. The Green Party has become a front in the recent wave of culture war bigotry. We felt that the recent wave of bigotry in the anti-CRT and anti-trans panics needed to be answered strongly. I noticed the, the issue in the Green Party when I noticed a former political associate from the Vermont Liberty Union Party had become an obsessive anti-trans demagogue. Some research led me to documentations of the fight against bigotry in the Massachusetts and Georgia Green Parties. Welcome, Margaret. Tell us about yourself. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, so yeah, you did a great intro. I'm Margaret Elizabeth. I am one of the co-chairs of the Green Party of the United States. I am the co-chair of the National Lavender Green Caucus, which is our LGBTQIA plus caucus. And I am one of our spokespeople as well for that caucus. So I'm really happy to have a chance to uh, come onto the show and talk about these issues. First off, I think that you're not wrong. The Green Party is a focal point of the, I hate to say culture war, right? Because that seems like a, a bit of a hyperbole in a lot of ways. Nevertheless, it is also kind of accurate. There, people do act as if that is the case. And so it's reasonable to talk about it like that. So, yeah, it is the case that the Green Party has become a focal point of both CRT uh, and, of course, uh, the sort of trans panic, which is now happening in the United States again, which is not terribly, you know, outside of the scope of our previous lived history, which is to say back in the 1970s, if, if any of your listeners are old enough to have been through that time, they will have recalled the gay panic of the 70s and the 80s where, oh my gosh, we can't have, you know, gay teachers in our classrooms because they're going to teach our kids to be gay. It's the exact same arguments that we heard 50 years ago. They're just as bad now as they were then. So where did this stuff start in the green party or has it always been an issue inside well that's a great question the so the united states green party is a member of the global greens network so we're an entire global group so inside the green party per se is a bit trickier to say i can talk about green party united states so in the green Party of the united states we were founded with a you know, our platform with with all of our values and the things we advocate for. And part of our social justice plank has always, from our inception, included the right for gender identity and gender identification and to elevate those folks as equal players in our political sphere in the green world and to have everybody with equity. So we started our party from the jump with this foundation. So how did we get here? <laughs> Great question or implied question. So the as we probably know, if we're well, if you're a trans person and you've been following the history of this, we know that the arrival of the quote unquote modern trans panic in the United States started with the mayoral race in Houston, Texas back in 2014. And that came, however, like that didn't come whole cloth out of nowhere. That came from the original groups that were advocating against same sex marriage. And when they lost, they had to shift their focus to a new group, and so that shifted over to trans people. So the the permutation of like anti-trans panic in society arises then, and that happens to coincide with a peculiar intersection of a rising trans panic in the UK. 
So how would these things like connect up together? Well, there are two international hate groups that cross-pollinate these ideas. And one of these groups, somehow or another, and I don't know how, but managed to find a few folks here in the Green Party of the United States in California who were amenable to the, uh, what we call in the United States, the TERF views, right? The trans-radical, uh, trans-exclusionary radical feminist view. And over in the UK, it's the quote-unquote GC view, the gender-critical view. Nevertheless, they're one and the same, right? It, they're just different phrases for different cultures. And unfortunately for us, uh, us being here in the Green Party of the United States, the UK media started really running with a very... A sensationalized kind of perspective on trans people. So over the course of a few years, the California people who had sort of been uh, co-opted by by this this anti-trans perspective started advocating more broadly in the party, trying to find sympathy for their perspective, which broadly didn't happen. And the Lavender Caucus became aware that this issue was beginning in California in 2017, and California brought an issue, a motion before their uh, coordinating council and asked them to adopt what would eventually become things adopted in the Georgia party. But California, so when that started California, the Lavender Caucus became aware of it, and we had representatives there, and we argued against it, and they were defeated. They moved out of, since they lost in California, they moved into one of the uh, forming identity caucuses. It's not a caucus yet. It's not accredited yet. But they moved there and they began to propagate their views. In that space, having a now a national access, they found willing listeners in Georgia and Massachusetts. And the C took hold in Georgia in a way that it couldn't in Massachusetts because the previous Georgia party was controlled by three people and nobody wanted to go against the the guy who was in charge of the party because he was really vindictive mean bullying that kind of behavior so he had basically taken over the party he had decided that this was his wedge issue this was the thing and and that was going to be the thing they did so uh, it, if you're a follower of the Green Party news, then you'll have probably been aware <laughs> several years ago, we went through the process of discrediting Georgia for this very pro for this very thing. It was contentious. There was a lot of strong feelings on both sides of the issue. People spoke pretty directly and frankly about it. And in the end, 93% of the Green Party voted and voted them out. So that was an overwhelming mandate, in my opinion. And to to very very clearly and definitively state that turf views and gender critical views are not welcome and if you adopt those views which the national party can't stop a state from doing but we can hold you accountable if you do it and if you do do it you're outside the the values of the green party and we will discredit you and it sucks because that's a difficult process it's hurtful for everybody and there's no the only thing you do is you get you know, a new playing field, a new level slate to, to create a new state party in who don't who don't share those views. So I think that's a good thing in, in and of itself, right? The process of going through disaccrediting and things like that when people are outside the rules, but it's still a hurtful process. And so the outcome of it was that Georgia did get disaccredited. And so so that was a good procedural outcome. Now, the 
political process there this is a long answer i'm sorry but oh my gosh so the political process here however was was not as smooth naturally you have the case that yeah i don't want to say like backroom deals because that kind of implies a different structure but there is the case where you have you know people making phone calls you know behind the scenes trying to lobby for well if you if you'll relent on this one issue maybe we can give in on this issue and like in many cases for political stuff that is a thing you can pull back on one side of a thing and kind of get more for another aspect of a bill you might be advocating for however in the case of discrediting a party for transphobia or racism or homophobia whatever it might be there is no like give some a little bit to you and i can get some a little bit on this side that's not a this is not that kind of equation this is either you're you adhere to the party values or you don't it's and if you don't then you don't want to be a green party in our perspective you don't have to be a green party but you don't get to play with us so that was that was that now the actual process of playing through this as i mentioned was a pretty political thing and it did unfortunately you know, lead to a bunch of state parties invading on this issue. Sometimes, well, in in the sense of saying, oh, we completely support you know the, the Lavender Caucus and their position 100%. Other times, the state would invade in on the situation to be a little bit less committed to the issue, like Massachusetts, and that did cause a lot of issues. You know, within the party, at least in terms of discussion, it, in the practical effect, it didn't because the, the vote worked out how it did. And, you know, the folks who were super upset with it, and there were some, let us know, and then mostly left the party. I think that is unfortunate, but also fine. It's unfortunate that they left because they couldn't reconcile themselves to the platform of the party that they joined, which has been this way from day one. So it's not changed at all. They joined the party like it is. What they didn't have to do was really be confronted with the fact that we have 10 key values, 10 of them, right? It's not like you get to pick seven of them and like, well, the other three I don't care about. Ha ha. That's not how it works. You either have, you know, you support all 10 or you don't. And if you don't, you should probably consider choosing a different political party. The Green Party isn't for you, right? We've got 10 key values and they're important. Each one supports our four pillars. And it's structured like this because this is the structure we get from the global greens, but it also allows us to really make a very clear demarcated case between ourselves as a political party and other political parties. We can say, look, 10 values. That's it. Just look at them. <laughs> and it's really easy. Right? It's, it's pretty straightforward. So I think it's, it's unfortunate that people did join the party when we had this platform plank to begin with from the start and they never read it or if they did they didn't understand what it meant and they didn't really think it would apply to them then when it does you know they instead of well i don't want to say gosh oh my gosh i can't believe i'm about to say this either i don't want to i'm going to anyway they're going to do the green thing and uh you know like evolve their views that is a something i would like sure of course everyone wants people they work with if they have a regressive view to progress right to be confronted with new information and change it and evolve into a better person but my aspiration for that my desire for that does not mean it occurs and you know I I do believe that it is the case that people can have a broad and variety of opinions within the same political party that 
that's absolutely true. We don't have to agree necessarily on the one best solution for climate change. However, there are some issues like racism where there's no give and take on this ground. There's, there isn't. You're either on board with our side of this or you aren't. There's, and from my perspective, you know, this is one of those areas in the party that still has some area of discussion, like how do we address the issues, but not is it an issue? And so when we get to the, the place of discussion in a, in a political party in particular, where we're looking at a very small demographic of people, and we have people in the party in positions of leadership who then suggest that this very small demographic of people are not a minority, don't have you know a special set of intersectional oppressions that they have to deal with, then that kind of stuff is very antithetical to party building. And it stands very contraindicated, to, in my mind, to the whole Green Party of the United States and the entire global green movement. And that was very one long... <laughs> answer <laughs> excellent is really encouraging what what i'm reminded of is when how the the baldy street gang uh push pushed the uh neo-nazis out of minneapolis and eventually became ara but i am gonna have to to ask you a little bit of a harder question from from my research um i understand the green party insists on on uh on gender parity in 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 leadership positions and one of the turf people from massachusetts said this particular statement which troubled me an awful lot i'm going to read it to you um the green party defines a woman as someone who menstruates and bears children i'm not going to um mention the person's name uh for fear of uh tarring the uh guilty but <laughs> Is this true? Um, what? What? How do you? How do you? How does a party with parity actually manage to people who don't easily fit into one box or another? Well, that's actually uh, a very great question and and kind of nested too. So I, I hope you'll let me address it in kind of a different perspective. So first things first, um, we're a political party. Right. So obviously, but that has some implications. One of the implications is that we're not a scientific group. So looking to the Green Party for this is what science says is probably not, you know, the best position for a political party, any political party to take, not not only the Greens. So since we're not a scientific organization, uh, our exposition of what a woman is, is a political thing as part of our platform in the same way that we define everybody else it isn't a let's go through and look at dna and find out what your chromosomes are right we don't define a woman as somebody who can give birth that's a very bizarre way and bioessentialist way to think of a woman actually because there are plenty of women who cannot give birth and they are still women so it's a very bizarre reductive view and to be 100 percent honest and i'm going to kind of tangent for just a second. I hope you don't mind. Uh, in my estimation, uh, Friedian's The um, Second Sex has completely done away with the idea of biosensualism as a uh, device to understand people. We are not our body parts. We are not just a finger or toe or you know, a breast or a liver or a kidney or anything like that. We're a combination, we're an amalgam of parts. And these parts are 
somewhat interchangeable, right? You can take a heart out of one person and put it in another person and man, usually it works and you can have a new heart. So we're not even completely unique internally in that sense, right? We can take and swap parts in and out. So humans are like biological machines in that sense, and kind of like uh, Legos in a <laughs> you pop one part off of one and pop, pop it onto another and by and large, it will work. Uh, there are some restrictions, of course, but the the idea that you can reduce anybody down to biological features and qualifications is, is so reductive that it's it's outside the scope of our party. What we do instead is define people based on our understanding of political theory. And as a consequence, we typically categorize people in terms of their class and what they are in relation to the class structure that we deal with. So in term, in, a, in a broader sense, let's say we adopt more of Andrea Dworkin's perspective towards women than somebody, oh, I don't even know, like Jermaine Greer's per se, both whom are very progressive left writers who advocate for, for all aspects of femininity, but still very different. So in any case, I think that is a, is a big deal because you reducing people down to biological functions is a non-starter for me. That's not terribly different than, you know, the sort of phrenology that one would encounter back in Nazi days. Let's measure your, your skull and see if you're smart or not, which when that, I mean, of course they did a bunch of that, right? And the actual science on it proved that there was no correlation at all to, to smart sizes and brain sizes, which of course we know, but you know, 1800s racists are going to 1800s racist, I guess. And so that's the same kind of weirdness we see today, right? It's become shifted, of course. But now the dialogue is, well, a woman is somebody who menstruates and gives birth. Okay, well, what about women who don't do that? Well, of course, they're still women. So this instantly means that that first definition, however that was defined, is wrong. It's obviously incorrect. The evidence demonstrates it so. So what the best you could say... It, it, to encompass everybody who the word woman could could cover is that a woman is somebody who identifies as a woman. A woman is somebody who is not a man. Now, to kind of touch on the other point that you had raised here, which is how, how does a party who uh, professes to have gender equity, especially in leadership positions, right? And we do say that. We even have many of our national positions are split between uh, gendered co-chair roles, right? Uh, male, female roles. So, Obviously, that is great for most cases, but in some cases, it's not so good. And in the specific case of non-binary folks like myself, it isn't working for us at all. So when I, I joined the party in 2016 after Jill Stein started her campaign then, and I decided I would no longer sit on the sidelines and just be a voter. I would active, you know, become active and start helping to organize. And I had no idea what political organization meant. So anyway, I joined in 2016 and I started looking around for positions I could run for. And as a non-binary person, I was like, hey, which one of these can I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. And they were like, well, you could just list your name in both. I'm like that is not a good solution to this problem, right? That's if, what if I win both elections? Well, then I'm super elected, obviously, but that is <laughs> weird, right? So we uh, had a bunch of back and forth with the platform committee and the, the bylaws, rules, and procedures committee, we being the National Lavender Green Caucus. And we made a proposal back in 2018 that added non-binary as a category for all of the existing seats. So we have a 
male, female, and non-binary category for all positions. And as a non-binary person, we we structured it so that you could choose if you did want to list yourself, you know, as male or female if you wanted, you could and still be non-binary or you could list yourself just as a non-binary person because there are some non-binary people, this isn't as common, but who feel you know, like I'm a, 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 f a non-binary femme or a non-binary non mask person. So they still might feel comfortable enough, you know, running under the mask or femme categories, even if they're non-binary. So we did that back in 2017. We made the proposal and it was passed in 2018. So for the last four years, we've been able to run, well, basically everybody has been able to run at least at the national level for a leadership position, which is properly reflected of their gender identity. Excellent. I mean, it, we tried to do that in the Liberty Union Party, which is now the Green Mountain uh, Peace and Justice Party in Vermont. But uh, we kept on, unfortunately, as people aged, uh, it ended up being much more on the female side. Well, there's a, you know, there's an interesting uh, parallel here because within the structure of work, right, the job society, women are overrepresented in positions which don't get paid. There, there's a lot of sort of relying on women to do free work and without women to do the free work of organizing, organizing and structure building in a lot of organizations and structures, they would never exist. But I think this is sort of the undervalue of labor. The, I, I think everyone undervalues their labor, to be honest with you. I know we live in a productive society where it says, oh, you know, you, if you don't make I don't know, computer stuff, right? If you're not a software programmer, you shouldn't earn, you know, $70 an hour or something like that. There's no way. I think everyone should get 70 bucks an hour. <laughs> I think everyone's time is valuable. It's a limited and finite resource. It's not replenishable by any means at all in the entire universe. You only have a tiny little bit of it. Of course, it's the most valuable thing in the planet or the entire universe. And somehow we value it at like $7 an hour. What? That is, that's no good. But I, mean, I do think it's trouble for women in, in nonprofit organizations who are expected to be like, well, your your spouse is off working, so you've got free time. So you you can donate your labor to us. I'm hearing a lot of uh, anti-capitalist noises, which I very much appreciate. But one of the critiques I've heard of the Green Party is it doesn't have an effective um, counter to capitalism. How do you uh, how do you uh, answer that uh, charge? Well, I think that might be uh, something that can't be applicable to the United States. <laughs> and I say that because uh, in 2017, we adopted a platform plank where we became an officially eco-socialist Green Party. So eco-socialism eco is in our platform. I think that so eco-socialism is a wordish kind of like hybrid of a word, right? It's ecology socialism. And that makes sense. We're saving the planet for the people right? we're not going to kill the planet itself it's still going to be alive we're just going to make it uninhabitable for us so it's important to understand why we're working on the climate change right for whom this benefit is going to apply at the same time i do think that because americans themselves have been subjected to some 60 years of anti-socialist propaganda it is sometimes a hard sell when you say oh we're social oh no and then it's socialism is bad now, as it turns out, the actual f philosophical orientation that we adopted is a thing called communalism. 
And communalism is the the brainchild of Maury Bookchin, who is our, well, not our complete political founder, but he, along with Howie Hawkins, formed the Green Left Network back in the, in the 80s, right? And they kind of formed to provide a counterweight against the Green Liberals at the time. And the Green Liberals and the Green Leftists joined together. That's the party we're in now. But um, anyway, so Bookchin's ideas about leftism and socialism have been incorporated into the entire Green Party. It's, it's part of our ethos. So so we stand opposed to capitalism from that perspective, but in a more practical sense, what does that mean? Well, what it means is we don't take corporate donations, so no corporate money for any of our candidates or our party. You, We will absolutely refuse it. Number two, that means that we are ab absolutely able to be independent of bought corporate interests. Our perspectives aren't informed by Exxon or Shell or Boeing or anybody else who's like, hey, have you considered how green we could make this cruise missile? It's like, no, I, we haven't. <laughs> no, it's going to drop sea bombs as it flies over the other countries. It's going to be great. That is not something we consider. So, uh, you know, and also being anti-capitalist means that we can take firm stances against the other parties. I don't have to, to worry that my candidates are going to also be owned by, you know, Pfizer. I can, I can directly push back against like the Republicans who just voted against lowering the insulin cap. I mean, I, I can't believe that we're, I, I don't want to get off on a tangent on this, but it's hard to believe that we're in a time where insulin went from $1, which was already kind of expensive for something they, they gave away for free, just to be honest. And I think insulin should be free as part of Medicare for all, but we went from $1 to $1,000. And like, that is the kind of thing that I feel like if we lived in other countries in other times, the person who did that would have been um, brought up on charges sooner and that company would have been taken back and the prices would have been reset back to what they were. Now, that guy did go to jail. The prices didn't get reset, so we're still in the exact same boat. So I feel like they held the person accountable but didn't actually address the issue. And if you don't address the issue, the problem still remains. This is exactly the issue. Now, we've still got the problem. We, and we're like, oh, well, we punished the guy. Yeah, but it didn't fix anything. So, like, what did we do? It was performative. That's, there's so much performative justice in the United States that it's hard to understand how we're not simply or corporate oligarchy or kleptocracy, really, which is, I think, what we are. We, we see, you know, recently Biden in his climate crisis announcement. Oh, my Lord. He's like, we're going to enact the tax on big corporations now like we've already had it they they simply scoff at that law and go put their money offshore so adding more tax laws isn't going to make them comply that's not going to do it and so it what ends up happening of course as you see just exactly what did happen so we're going to raise the taxes on the big corporations okay great that's going to be fine but what did that practically mean they're going to, they went out to ebay and they went out to paypal they told everybody if you've made more than 600 dollars in transactions we're coming after you baby when it didn't used to be that way it was ten thousand dollars right so what happened in the actual practical effect of raising taxes on the big corporations is they went after mom and pop or operations or independent sellers out of their you know apartments that's who they went for. They didn't go after Amazon. I know. I live in the city that Amazon practically owns, and they don't pay tax here. Washington State is a terrifying, terrifyingly regressive tax state. It is only sales tax. So that really stinks 
if you're a per poor person or a working class person, because the cost of living in, in Seattle, at least in King County, is pretty high. Not the whole state, right? It varies pretty significantly in the way that it can when you have a dominant urban center and then a lot of rural area. So, you know, King County is expensive, but nevertheless, there is, there, it's just, uh, it's a very frustrating experience. And I think that I'm kind of getting off the rails on this a little bit, but I think it's really, uh, let, me, let me stop there. <laughs> I'll just stop there. I'll keep going. Okay. Going back to the price of insulin, mm. what, what would you, and what would your party, uh, what solutions would you have to doing this? Uh, personally, I like, I would like to see the idea of pharmaceutical companies being uh, nationalized, owned by the people or owned by a cooperative of workers with some sort of understanding with the society as general that you're not just for maximum profits. What, what, mm -hmm. what, how do you approach that? So the Green Party advocates for single payer Medicare for all. And under single payer medical Medicare for all, that's, that's covered. Like dental, vision, the whole nine yards, everything is provided under that coverage scheme. And that, that's been part of our platform for a very long time now. And I think that what we're starting to see too is at least in states like my state where we have citizens initiatives, we're seeing gr groups like Whole Washington, which is a Medicare for All group, pop up, start coordinating nationally and are organizing events. Um, my state party, Green Party of Washington, has been a sponsor of, whole, of the Whole Washington movement of single payer Medicare for All and of also a frank choice uh, electoral voting reform and proportional representation. But it's essentially that. Medicare for all. It provides for all of our medical needs in a very comprehensive, thorough way, which covers every single citizen. And I know there's a lot of like, well, how do we pay for Medicare for all? It's so expensive. And I want to say something like, you know, we could close 100 200 military bases that's going to really and still leave us with 500 it's not like we wouldn't have a bunch of them still right uh, there's really easy ways to make a bunch of cuts in our budget to actually pay for the things we want but even better than that there is a there was a an act called the the need act of 2012 which was sponsored by dennis kucinich and it completely reformed our monetary system and restored uh, sovereignty to our monetary supply so what that practically means and this is a thing that no, people don't talk about too much but what it practically means is we would be able we our government would be able to print money like it's in our constitution to be able to do without incurring interest or debt right it can just print sovereign money so no interest no debt right now as we all probably know right the federal reserve act of 1913 created both the federal reserve as a private company and the IRS is a federal agency, right? Private company and federal agency. And the federal agency's agents are designed in, to collect tax revenue so it can pay the interest on the money that is borrowed from the Fed. That's, that's what our tax revenue goes to. It does not go to anything else. It just pays the Fed. So if we took back sovereign control of our money, we no longer have to pay any interest for money we print as the government, which means we have the money we want without having to pay stupid interest rates to a private bank for borrowing it because we're a sovereign nation and can print our own money. Now, this obviously is, again, sort of an anti-corporate perspective because this is a private corporation that holds our control of money. They're never going to let that go easily. And thus we find the same thing, right? Oligarchs in control at a secret, or not secret, but it's sort of a hidden layer of 
abstraction between us. The Federal Reserve, if they would have called it, you know, Jim's private bank, I bet people wouldn't have voted for it. But calling it the Federal Reserve made it seem like a federal agency and gave it a legitimacy which it doesn't and never had. Nevertheless, in 20, 2035, we're finally going to be upside down on our interest payments. The interest will be too high for us to actually make payments with our income tax any longer. So we're going to finally be in a position where if they called in our debt, we would be in a very, very bad way. So I don't know what the government is going to do, but I know what I would do, which is implement the NEED Act. And then we would have all the money we want and we could pay for things like, oh, you know, fixing our infrastructure that was built in 1956 because Ike thought it was great, which it was, but we haven't done anything with it since. We've got bridges over tons of our really important waterways and rivers that are crumbling, that are unsafe. We had a, a triple level viaduct road here in Seattle that bypassed our entire downtown, and it had so many cracks in it from earthquakes, we had to replace it. Uh, finally, to the tune of almost $2 billion, a great big tunnel bored through. And in th what that tunnel actually did, what they did with this, was a disaster to us as urbanites living in the city. Because Seattle is a weird geographical situation only has two highways on either side of it so every way into the city is off one of these two highways one of them was that triple decker aqueduct kind of thing so when they destroyed it and put in a tunnel they put in no exit ramps so as a consequence you only now have one highway to get into the city the tunnel has become essentially a bypass f to take you from the north side of seattle where where a lot of the rich folks live down to Boeing, which is on the south side of Seattle, where a lot of them work. So it's become essentially the Boeing bypass. And it really, really stinks because we had to pay for it taxpayer money. Right? If Boeing wants their own special bypass, they should pay for that. But this is the nature of how the corporate oligarchy works in our country, right? They'll, they'll say to us, um, hey, you know what would be great would be a new highway somewhere to, to help all of these workers move. And then the county agrees and they build a new highway somewhere. And then now, next thing you know, that new highway that we all paid for as taxpayers becomes a toll road that now we have to pay to access. Uh, going back to, uh, to single payer, um, the party I was in in Vermont, we, we called for single payer, except I, I have a problem with that because single payer just it focuses on the paying side. I see a lot of the problem in healthcare is not whether it's a single payer because that could be corrupted into some healthcare co corporation being the payer and them skimming profits off. What I see is yes, we need we need national healthcare. It's 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 only only thing a civilized country does, but we need to take profit out of healthcare and profit out of farm the pharmaceutical companies and i think that those need to be nationalized and i think i'm not just criticizing your platform our platform had the same weakness it didn't focus on it focused on the paying side which i think is a mistake when we need to make to actually nationalize the healthcare system and take take a lot of profit out of it and even a lot of hospitals are organized as nonprofits. However, if you look at them, there that's just that's just a sham. Mm -hmm. And a lot of hospitals also are religious in nature, and will, you know, in the light of the recent Supreme Court ruling on Roe v. Wade, it makes it 
tricky to even know where to go and get health care in some spaces because you know the the catholic churches advocates have indicated that they don't have to provide health care for the mother only or the fetus so if you go to a, a catholic hospital they'll keep the kid alive but not you so that's a tricky that's a tricky proposition and many times you don't even get a choice and you don't know right it's still like just a local hospital so i think I think it is a, a tricky thing to kind of get health care, especially when there's a for-profit motive of providing it. I, I'm kind of, personally speaking, I'm on, a, I'm on this kind of weird kind of hybrid split thing. I do think that there is a value in having private health care, just like in private education, but I don't think that should be the standard. I really think it should be free, just like higher education, in the same way that our primary and secondary schooling is free. I mean, there's, it's paid for by taxes, but... Uh, it's you know practically free to the people who uh, go to it, and so should university level. And for the same reasons, we need a higher level of education to understand the world we we live in and to be productive and good members. I think about that that Carl Sagan interview on the Johnny Carson show <laughs> so much, where he talked about you know soon we're going to be in a world where we the citizens don't understand the technology that governs us, and we don't understand the systems, and and they'll be too complex for us, and. I do fear that because it become once that happens, and it may have already occurred in some places, but once that happens, we we will lose the ability to solve problems in it, in that system, and it will become ungovernable. And when, it, you know, if it's people, that's one thing. But if it's a system of control, if it's a system of exploitation, then those things which are no longer able to be checked by the humans that it controls is a big big deal and when technology gets out of our grasp when we we lose the ability to even understand what the technology is doing it starts to get a magicness to it right it loses connection to physical reality it's just not, i i imagine i think about this a lot too uh, one of the most amazing technologies i've ever seen in my life simply because of how where i was born and all the rest is the seeing eye door the door that just opens when you walk near it. It was like the the literal open sesame magic spell from my childhood that I read in the books. It's like, wow, it's still impressive to me. I know it's like a pretty basic technology, right? But imagine the level of sophistication that's going to exist between seeing eye door technology and whatever is coming next in terms of personal communications gear and you know, our interpersonal uh, driving mechanisms. I want to call them autos, right? Not cars, because they're not cars or trucks. They're just autos that take things, us being a thing, from place to place. The, the, that sophistication is going to be as magic to me and, you know, folks my age and generation as that seeing eye door was when I was a little kid. It's like, oh my gosh. And it's going to seem so completely disconnected from our material world, yet it isn't. It is connected to these very material processes. And you know, these systems get complex, and as we, we look back through all the systems we have, one of the most intricately complex systems we deal with, which impacts our life day to day, is the pharmaceutical and medical system. I don't know if you've had a serious medical condition. I've had a couple, but the level of paperwork that you have to fill out is extraordinary over and over again for the hospital, for the doctor, for the administrations, for the insurance. And if you miss any of that, if you get any of it wrong, it's just like the being caught in some sort of Kafka-esque bureaucracy. And suddenly they're not paying for half of the surgery that they already said they were going to pay for. And now you're looking at what I think is most Americans 
actual real fear that they don't talk about too much, but is medical bankruptcy. Yeah, I'm, my, I come from a family of, of doctors. I mean, my grandfather died in, in 70, 72, and he was a doctor. My uncle was, and I have current family that are are still in the medical field. But it's like my grandfather didn't have to worry about paperwork. My My uncle essentially went out of business because he couldn't handle all the Medicare paperwork. It's it's not it's not a necessity it's something that is grown up around medical stuff and that what's driving the preponderance of paperwork is the insurance industry which i would like to see that gone i don't want to see you know this parasitic uh industry that we are forced to pay to given mm -hmm. i mean i i don't want to sound like a libertarian but they're supported by government force and mandate that mm -hmm. you 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 have to do this if we have a national health care system that needs to go and it's going back to what you were saying earlier about there being private and public doctors in your ideal system uh, in my family i've seen people going out going losing their practices because they can't they weren't business businessmen they, a, a public doctor like my my old partner, she she works for public health care in in Pennsylvania. She gets her her uh, certain number of hours and 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 gets her pay, though she has to think a lot. A lot of her time is sent, spent thinking about insurance, which a doctor should not ever have to think about. How do I justify this to be paid for? That means you're not getting their full brain power on medical care. That's a problem. A huge problem. And I think that is like it really deprives us, the citizens of a lot of skilled quality medical providers. You, you really do have to think, you know, am I am I a business person? Can I run a successful solo enterprise? And that isn't, you know, not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, like a, a medical entrepreneur in particular, right? So I think it is a, a pretty disastrous thing. I'm, I, I've gone a lot back and forth with my comrades and stuff about this kind of stuff because I'm, I came from, so I was born in Libya and and spent a bunch of time living there before I moved to the United States, and so my experience of living in a socialist country gives me a different perspective than having grown up in the United States. And so I've seen what it's like to have free health care. I've seen what it's like to have free education and free housing and like paying your citizens to go to college at the same rate of the job they're going to get when they graduate from college. Like you get the same pay the moment you start school. So there's a massive incentive for the citizens to pursue their own interests. There's no disincentive. You want to be a farmer? Here's some land and some seeds. And, you know, it's it's a very different way of going about it. Libya could do it because it was uniquely situated compared to most other countries in the world of having vast wealth. So does the United States. And if Libya could do it, so can the United States. There's just no way we can't. We just don't choose to. And it's mostly because we're captured by corporate interests. You know, um, the as you were alluding to, the the sort of explosion of paperwork which is come about uh, as a rise of just insurance in general. And then, of course, because of the ACA, uh, the Affordable Care Act. So I know that for a lot, uh, I'm not sure who your necessary audience is, but presuming we're kind of on the left side here, 
I think it's pretty clear that the ACA is one of the largest institutional transfers of wealth from the poor to the wealthy in our country's history. You can't mandate insurance by dint of imprisonment or fine without it being outside the realm of of you know any kind of democratic process of free choice. So I think that we, we fix this issue by extending Medicare to all to all citizens so they'll have it. There, that's the insurance for everybody. They don't have to pay into the ACA, which of course just is private insurance. I can't tell you the amount of people I've talked to who are happy that they get insurance now, but extraordinarily unhappy that they can't afford any of the care that the insurance provides them because their copays are too high, their deductibles for tests, for uh, medicine are all way higher than they used to be. So yeah, they have insurance because they're required to, and they can't afford to go see their doctor because the copays are now $90 per visit. And if you have a test that comes off of it, it's another 160, and then your medicine's another 200. So you've just dropped $400 on maybe an allergy. And you know most working class families don't have just $400 sitting around that they can drop on a medical visit. And it really, that obviously is its own conversation, probably one that needs a lot of depth in it. But the fact that our citizens, broadly speaking, don't have a significant safety net of savings and the, and the rest has a massive implication on the kinds of impacts any sort of medical crisis will have on us. I think, in, in, to be perfectly honest with you, if I could like reduce every, if I could take every problem that we as a society are dealing with, I honestly think there's like four of them that if we could address it structurally, everything else would sort of fix itself without us having to do too much about it. And one of the biggest ones I think would be UBI. Imagine, just for the sake of discussion, if everybody in America had 4K UBI, right? Every citizen who's qualified, 4K UBI. So that's $48,000 a year. That's not even that much money depending on where you live. Depending on some places, it's a lot. But so my friend in Denmark, uh, the, which is where I kind of came up with this idea. He's a disabled guy, and he gets $48,000 a year from his disability insurance in, in Denmark. And when he and I chat, I'm a disabled American veteran, and I don't get anywhere close to that kind of money and my disability pay. And he can't believe it. He has no idea how I can live. And I'm like, well, me either. I generosity of friends, mostly. And as I think about it, one of you see this over and over again. How many people... I know and you know and all of your listeners know who take jobs not because they want that job but because they want those benefits specifically the health care benefit without it they don't have health care so they take a job they don't want in a field they are not interested in only for the health care benefit which means they're not going to be as productive as they would in another gig they don't their stress is going to be high and they're not going to stay for very long because they don't want the job anyway all they want is the benefits if we had 4k a month ubi medicare for all people could literally work any job they wanted whatever their passion and pursuit was they would be able to pay their medical bills they'd be able to pay their rent and be able to have enough money to feel like they are able to have a nice little treat for a long, hard day of work. The sorts of things that everybody takes for granted if you have stable, good employment in the United States. And if you don't, if you're a working class person who's young, you might work 
two or three jobs, sometimes at odd, weird shifts, you know, and all this kind of swing shifting just to get a job with benefits so that you can pay the insurance rate so you can have it and still have to live with five people in your town. I think it's just a disaster. And with 4K month UBI, we fix so many issues, right? We fix the I don't have any money, I'm poor issue. <laughs> we fix the I can't buy my medical coverage because I'm poor issue. We fix the I hate my job, the whole economy is unproductive er issue. There's so much that's addressed by it. I mean, some people actually really do like being waitstaff. They like that dynamic, the fast-paced environment of the restaurant. Yet they, they live, and, and I know many people know this if they've ever worked in the restaurant industry, but the base salary isn't minimum wage, right? It's like $2.30 plus tips. And so, of course, you're going to hustle to make those tips, but folks shouldn't have to rely on that because it's really inconsistent income. We should all be able to have a life of dignity and worth with a base level income provided by a nation which is as wealthy as we are. If we were a poor nation, we wouldn't be able to do this and we couldn't have this discussion in a real way. But we're not. And because we're not, we can. And the fact that we don't is political. And it's, and, and, you know, it's hard to not be cynical about it because everyone I know would benefit, except for the handful of people who happen to be wealthy, whom I'm, who I know. They wouldn't, and they wouldn't qualify for it because they make much more. But everyone else, it would be, it would be such a life changer, it's hard to put into perspective. The amount of dignity that, a, I, and I hate to say it like this, gosh, because this is so capitalist, right? But um, you, can't, you can't argue that the Protestant work ethic hasn't taken hold in America. The whole sort of, if you're, uh, right, the, what, what is the phrase? An idol's, uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? So you want to be productive. You need to be productive. And the less productive you are, the less you feel valued, valued in our society. And that has a tremendous tr corrosive and toxic effect on a person's self-esteem and their self-worth. And when your self-esteem and your self-worth start going, that starts a, can start a cycle of depression, of anxiety, and all the rest, which puts you into now, if you're able to, into now seeking health care for mental health professionals as well. So we, we induce people to have ailments and illnesses that are almost completely resolved by them having enough money to get proper food, to get proper health care, to, to get a proper job for themselves and to get proper housing. And, you know, and how do we, how do we do this? I, it's, it's an easy enough thing. It just takes political will and courage, right? So much in politics is about that. If you're willing to do the right thing, you probably won't win re-election because the corporate interests aren't going to give you money for your next re-election bid. So if this is your job, I'm now a politician, so I, this is my job, right? It's the same thing. I need benefits from my job, so I'm not going to lose my job, so I'm going to do the thing. We need, what would be great would be a political revolution of one term where we had a whole bunch of politicians who were like, I don't care about getting reelected. I just want to do the right thing. And then they did the right thing. And then people were like, oh, thank you so much. Wow, that's great. And then we would have UBI. We would have Medicare for all. We'd have education that's provided to our citizens. We'd have housing that's provided. I can't begin to tell you the amount of times that I've read articles here in Seattle from somebody who's moved here recently, in the last 10 years, talking about how unsafe Seattle is because we have people living on the streets and panhandling. Yet we've got 10,000 homes empty 
in our city because they're bought by out-of-country investors and held for you know profit. That's it. So you know, I want to say, sure, those out-of-country investors are out-of-country investors, and they can invest in whatever they want, of course. But they should not mean that it makes Americans homeless as a result of that. Our citizens should be homed and housed, and if if they wish that, right? Not every person who's on the streets wants to be homed, and I'm not trying to force people into that. It should be the option for them. But the lack of a systemic uh, approach to these problems means that everything we do is piecemeal and likely to fail because we're, we're going to address one part of a big system and the rest of the system can simply compensate and overcome what we do. So it needs to be a systemic change. It needs to be a whole political revolution in, in one cycle. Right. If you I think about this a lot, too. Right. Because there's two other third parties, the libertarians and us. So and I imagine sometimes <laughs> what if it had switched up? What if it was the Greens and the libertarians that were the two dominant political parties? What would our country look like? So it would be weirdly independently individualist because of the libertarians, yet completely socialist and ecologically oriented because of the Greens. So that it would somewhat be better, maybe. I don't know. But what I do think is that voting for the, the blue team or the red team isn't going to make anything different because the blue team and the red team do the same things over and over again and have for 70 years. And I get like, you know, you want so you're like, wow, maybe they'll do something different this time. That's just not how it works. So people need to take a chance on a new kind of vision, right? But you, like we both know, if, if let's say they elected a libertarian president or a green president, that president would be a lame duck. The Congress and the Senate wouldn't work with them at all. They'd block everything they do. So the only thing they could do would be executive orders, which is a lot, but it's not the same thing. So it would really need to be like a green wave or a gold wave, I guess, as the libertarians, right? And completely shift the entire electorate the electorate in terms of their perspective and it wouldn't even have to be long i you know i i think sometimes americans have a a, a time dilation in terms of our own history and we don't understand it much and it's there's not a lot of it to be honest right <laughs> we're, we're a young nation and yet we still have a very uh, fundamental misunderstanding about some of our history specifically our history towards uplifting and supporting minorities. I know, obviously, in, in our start, that was not the case, but the starting of the Green New, of the, well, the Green New Deal, of the New Deal, right, with FDR, our country shifted, our, and it shifted its perspective, and it really did change things, and we really did, for a while, have a much more egalitarian and equitable point of view towards Americans and towards the world at large. I regret you know a lot that the situation that we are in right now has come about mostly through the fault of nobody who's alive right now right we're the inheritors of a of a cold war we're the inheritors of a system of oppression that has been laid across the entire world many of us are only just now waking up to it which is really encouraging of course as a person who wants to see change the advent of the internet and shows like yours, like yours, podcasts where people can listen all over the world and hear different perspectives are raising the overall consciousness of, you know, the people on the planet and helping them see that there are other perspectives available. And to kind of, and I know this again, a long answer, sorry, it's, it's my thing. I'm known for this in the party, but to, to, to kind of hone it in, right, under where we are right now, right, under late stage advanced capitalism, 
most people have been convinced that there are no other options. And so they never even raise their head up to look for them. They're, they've been trained to be submissively conformist and that their value is in essentially being a replaceable part that can be swapped into another company or another corporation. And, and your actual worth is based on having a decent personality, good hygiene, and a, and a nice smile. It has nothing to do with any quality of character. It has nothing to do with the rest. We're just cogs in a machine, a sort of congenial, pleasant machine. And that's obviously a huge problem for us as individual people. It robs us of our self. It robs us of our creative expression. And it does, I think, provide the mental framework to keep us actually repressing ourselves. I think one of the, the critiques that Bookchin made of uh, Marx essentially, which led him away from uh, socialism altogether, as he understood it, was the realization that the workers could never actually organize into a revolutionary force because they had been co-opted by the schedule of the work, by having to be there at, you know, at start time, at break time, at end time, over and over again. They just become conditioned to the same structure. And so Bookchin became convinced that they, they weren't going to ever be a revolutionary force. And indeed, you know, we still see mostly they aren't. The only time they do is when they break free of the schedule and get outside to a union organizing perspective. And, you know, and of course, in the United States, for a long time, ever since 1980, after Reagan killed the unions, we really haven't seen any union activity until, well, COVID. And well, one thing that has been inspiring as far as union activity was actually the wildcat strikes in West Virginia. That was really encouraging. And it showed that people were willing to take a risk and actually break the law and go against their, their bureaucratized, useless unions and fight strongly for their own rights. I really do wish more people in America knew the history of our labor. I think it's been, uh, it's obviously on purpose that it's been obscured from us in the same way that like critical race theory has been obscured from us. It's important to know these things. I think when, you know, I, one of the funnier things to me is American leftists not knowing that, you know, um, <clears throat> the International Workers' Day, right, May Day is an American holiday. And started here, right from from the Haymarket riots, and the the anarchist perspective that was here. I live in Washington State, so um, in my state we had the Tacoma. It was the Tacoma riots that basically took place there too, because that was the big dock and ship and rail hub area. So the same kind of thing, right? The workers organized against it. The police were brought in. People killed because that's what they did to, to labor. They still do it. They, they kill us in the streets and it hasn't changed. And the more workers stand up for themselves, the more the repression is unleashed against us, but eventually it loses and it has lost every time if we can stand firm. And we standing firm is an unfortunate euphemism because what that really means is some people die and they get killed by the state and their deaths by the state galvanized the movement and the movement then becomes successful in a way that it wouldn't have been otherwise and it's really unfortunate but that's historically been the case throughout american history if we look back at 
successful movement after successful movement. And to be, I don't know, to kind of take this back to West Virginia for a second, I really wish more people understood the origin of the phrase redneck. Like, I really, really do. It's such, it's been co-opted as well, right, to become a phrase of denigration and to to completely dismiss and discount an entire group of people, mostly folks who live in Appalachia and mostly folks who are rural and poor. And I think it's a disaster on purpose to do, of course, right? And it's, and it's to really just disempower the labor movement. I, whenever I get a chance to, I tell the story of Blair Mountain and the battle, and I think it is so instructive. And I think that so many Americans, they just wouldn't believe the stuff that happened. Like the, the Colorado mine strikes, the bringing out the National Guard to suppress the miners, like the entire military, like they just wouldn't think it was real. And, or they would think we were making like, you know, one of those Philip K. Dick, you know, apocryphal stories, some sort of sci-fi history thing. But this really happened. These things were the, the predecessors to the destruction of the labor movement in the United States and its eventual now rebirthing, if you will. And like, it's, a, it's really unfortunate because I think if we would have kept the labor movement intact, we would probably have avoided most of the disasters that came about after Reagan's presidency, and specifically the loss of unionizing of the air traffic controllers, the the high corporate tax rate which would never have been lowered which will never get back and i think that's one of the most crushing legacies that reagan has left us to be fair well you know i i think when those um republican and you know tea partiers talk about make america great again the thing that they never talk about is the tax rate like america was whatever great in that sense because the corporations were paying 90 percent tax rate and so there was money to the greatness right uh fix the roads build roads build hospitals all that stuff we had the money to do it like my old boss used to say to me we can do anything you want if you with enough time and or money what do you have <laughs> you know in america we have money so we can use our money to fix our problems, and we should, but instead we're using our money. You see, I'm sure we've seen the latest uh, budget bill from Biden, 50% going to the military, 3% going to infrastructure and healthcare, 3%. What do we want? What do we expect? We're going to put 3% of our money into our healthcare. We're going to get 3%, right? Ah, it's so frustrating to me because I know we could do better. I know, I know it. I just... And, and as a leftist, as a person who is grateful and humbled to have earned the trust of their comrades and colleagues for multiple terms in leadership positions in the Green Party, I feel it's one of my duties as, a, as an advocate for the party to you know, raise green issues, eco-socialism, and how the mil industrial military complex, the, the blob, uh, destroys the environment in really specific ways, right? Not that they're like, oh, let's go cut down trees, though they do do that. It's far more insidious. But, you know, and, and I want to advocate for Medicare for all and I want to advocate for housing and for education and all these things which are important to me as a person and me as an American. And I know that as a sort of leftist perspective, it's not necessarily our view that, you know, like nations should be strong militarily or they should be anything other than what they are, just a political nation state. And broadly speaking, political boundaries are bullshit so <laughs> uh, but so leaving that bit aside for a second what i think as an american is that 
you know, I do want the place I live to be nice. I want I want the place everyone lives to be nice, to be honest. So it's not just for me. I want everyone's place to be nice. And what that means is a is a rethinking of our entire global priorities, right? I don't want to drone strike people in Yemen. I want to help them build a new school or a house. Sure, because we drone striked and blew it up. I don't want us to drone strike anybody. I want us to build new housing and hospitals. I want us to have 20,000 um, vaccines for monkeypox in our national stockpile. And instead of letting them expire, send them to African countries who are experiencing monkeypox outbreaks so they can use them. There's no need for us to keep a national stockpile of things that expire and not use it. What's the value in that? How does that help us? If monkeypox is a virus that can escape from where it originated, and it is, just like smallpox, then that means there is a strategic or national interest in addressing it at the origin, right? So we would, we should take our 20 million vaccines and give it to those countries and help them deal with it so that virus doesn't come here. It, like, what's the phrase? An ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure? And so... You know, I think America is like, well, how about 10 pounds of cure? Have we tried that? Uh, no, it's not better. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I'm astounded by the positivity of your last uh, your last screed, but I'm going to have to bring us to a slightly darker place. This is something I wanted to ask about. When we talk about Medicare for all, we talk about UBI. This, the sad reality is that these concepts are being hijacked by actual fascist movements. Um, uh, Matt Heimbach, who was one of the organizers of, of the Charlottesville rally in 2017, where Heather Heyer was killed, he's been quite involved with the March for Medicare for All. And there's a, a part of fascism that's called syncretism, which means they take other popular ideas and make them their own. In this, the, the flip side of syncretism is entryism, when we have an ec ecological movement or a green movement where fascist or right-wingers try to get in. What is your experience about entryism? What is your experience about this type of thing of, of right-wingers trying to get in and, and actually take over movements? Well, that's... <clears throat> Thank you for asking such a deep question because it allows me to talk a lot, which is great. Um, so let me take it in reverse order, maybe. So my experience with uh, fascists trying to infiltrate movements, like, yeah, we had it happen in the Green Party. Uh, Green Party United States was... So uh, let me back up one step. I do think that in today's modern society, transphobia is the fastest and surest entryway into fascism. So... It is not surprising to me that Greens who embraced transphobia and transphobic views did find themselves essentially embracing a fascist perspective, an eco-fascist one, which is, to me, a very strange kind of place to get to. I don't actually understand how a person gets to the point where they're like, I want to save the environment and also, you know, kill a bunch of the people. So that is a is a very Malthusian perspective and obviously very incompatible with in my perspective the global greens platform number one and number two the specific iteration of it as we are here in the in the green party of the united states so you know i do 
I, I, so we have run into it. Uh, you see it online too right now. You'll actually see a bunch of people talking about, well, we could organize together and we could join this party and we could take it over. It's easy to take over. And there's online discussions about how to do so. Even in, in my own party, I see it. You know, we have... So after we removed the Georgia party and discredited them, there were a bunch of people who were upset and they decided they were going to leave the Green Party of the United States and they were going to form a new Green Party, a turf Green Party. And so I guess they're doing so. I'm not really sure I don't keep in tabs on the on the on the fash. So uh, but they are uh, attempting to do so. And so what we see is like Greens who are co-opted by bad science and poor political education being um, pitted against other greens with a different kind of ecological bent so right a lot of for a lot of people in, in general they are issue voters right? it's issues that matter not so much personalities yet in fascist circles it is more personalities that matter and issues kind of come second the issues are more like flavor spices to the personality. So if the if the personality has the right flavoring, then you'll you'll follow them. And in the Green Party, we had some of that with uh, some folks coming in after the 2016 uh, Bernie issue. Right, they were basically Democrats who were progressives, and they thought they would be able to come into the Green Party of the United States and change it to be essentially i don't know like the the green caucus of the democrats that did not work because we are socialist by nature and in fact when they came in in 2016 that's obviously the sort of prompting that caused us to go through the process of adopting the platform plank which specifies that we're eco-socialists we're not green democrats and the perspectives aren't simply semantics as we can see you know, when you make a climate deal and it's praised by the oil companies, you know you didn't make a climate deal. It's the same thing as making an arms reduction treaty and Boeing and Raytheon going, we love this arms reduction treaty. It was so great. It's like, that is not, <laughs> that is not a thing. So, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that we're not just Democrats in that sense. And we don't share a lot of their other values either. But we do on some some issues. Obviously, we, we agree in raising corporate taxes. Many Democrats, even though their party doesn't support it, support Medicare for all. The same thing with Republicans, actually. In fact, this is to kind of bring this back around to that this, the first part of your of your question to me. So many people on the, the right, right, Republicans, Democrat or libertarians have been called Democrats, too, because they're on the right to me. But <laughs> so many people on the right support Medicare for all. And you know, even, I guess, bad people can have good ideas in that sense, right? But the, the specific sort of co-option of left terms, left ideas, bringing them into the sort of alt-right sphere and then using that is something I've been watching, I don't know, for the last seven or eight years online specifically, right? Because the online discourse evolves really quickly. And you you... If you go to the signal rooms or any like even the reddits which are really public right you can watch you can just see the sort of strategizing where they talk about let's co-op the terms of the left let's use their progressive language against them and i think that you know from a two from two perspectives from a like sun tzu art of war perspective 
the adoption of the terms of your opponents and co-opting them is a good strategy. Like it works uh, from pe from the perspective of being the populace that it's being done to. We uh, need to have a better response to it than simply say, look what they're doing. Yeah, they know what they're doing. <laughs> they're not unaware. Our response needs to be to expose that to as a as an untrue belief that they don't actually share and to adv advocate beliefs that do set us apart still. I think it's weird in a sense to kind of as a as a person to say, well, yeah, that person disagrees with me politically about, let's say, whether or not we should be providing uh, military aid to Ukraine. But they agree with me on these other issues so I can work with them on stuff. I think that's how most Americans actually feel about things except for people who are diehard uh, base in their in their political parties and which is not very many of us to be fair I, mean, I know that American voting is really obscured in this sense but the, there's a hardcore like 20% Republican and a hardcore 20% which are Democrat and those you know red and blue team I never talked to those guys those are they're firmly entrenched but that's a you know a huge swath 60% of the movable middle of the country 52% choose not to vote and imagine like I just in my mind I'm like what would happen if that big group of people who aren't committed to left or right right um, voted and chose to exercise their power they and and I think it's a real it's a real shame so the the right co-opting our language and using it to like present themselves in a more favorable way isn't new and I and I think that the responses that we have to it as leftists as political organizations or action groups activist groups will vary from my perspective as a, as a political party we issue you know press statements will issue op-eds and stuff like that to explain our views is different and that sort of thing and that's good and fine as a person my exposition of this stuff gets more direct and I like to confront them really specifically about issues where and, I, and I'll really hammer on points like well you can't really be on the left if you also believe that certain groups of people are inferior to other groups of people that's not a position that's consummate with being on the left and so I think sometimes it's that you know direct interaction with a person who isn't ideologically committed to one team or the other but has some regressive views some repressive perspectives and if you can engage with them you know they'll they'll shift they'll they'll change their mind but people who are dug in got their heels in they've done so for a reason right they these folks are adopting left terms not because they're just seeing them used and like oh no that makes sense so let's use intersectional that that makes no they're doing it for a really specific political agenda to undermine the value of the terms to make it meaningless in the sense right we see it right now and this is i don't know if i should say content warning here or something but we see it right now in the current shifting of the discourse from into the anti-lgbt uh what dog whistle now groomer right grooming itself used to be a word that was not pejorative right you would you would you would hear people talk about all the time well, i'm grooming my junior partner for a leadership position i'm doing that kind of stuff right and it's been shifted now to be specifically about you know encouraging kids to be any flavor of lgbtqi plus 
as if you could do that, number one, which you can't, but that's the implication here. So I, you're going to have a person in some position of authority, usually a teacher uh, or daycare provider who is queer in some manner. And then now that just by dint of their existence, the, you know, their, the, the sort of radiance of their awesomeness, I guess, is going to cause the kids to like, woo, look, now I'm queer too, moms. Um, you know, and they're going to tell both their moms that, which is fine, but like, that's not how it works. And the fact that it gets so purposefully jumbled up by the, the leaders of that movement is intentional, right? I think many people, and I, and I don't mean to be condescending because I certainly can come across that way on occasion, but the fact of the matter is that roughly 54% of Americans read at a sixth grade level. That's the truth. And that's a it's really soberingly sad statistic to be fair but what it means is that we we as people who talk about americans in general and and have i don't know let's say higher than a sixth grade reading level um often don't bear that in mind and it's hard to i think sometimes remember that sure i can i can use a term like oh i don't know queer let's say a pretty normative term in normalish society that has a generalized meaning but in other you know contexts people with less exposure to the term who've only seen it in a very few specific cases it's only a pejorative and it's something very very negative and so it can be hard to talk to people who that's their only thing and that's their only perspective and say ah but there's actually this other world of knowledge about this because they're where they live, their material reality isn't that way. And I think it's, it's like, this is the value of uh, one of the big values, I think, of Marxist analysis is that it puts a huge emphasis on the material conditions and the material realities around a person and the situation they're in. And if you can't account for this stuff, you're not going to be able to make good progress. So, you know, I think in America, we do not have a great Marxist perspective, of course, but even outside that, even if we do have a socialist view, we often don't take into account the, the educational neglect that many of our citizens have endured. And this is too, it's on purpose, right? The, the, the shifting of public education funding from being a federally, a wholly a federally funded program to now being shifted to being funded off property taxes has had a devastating impact on our poor communities. How could it not? What it means is every poor community has too many kids in the classroom, not enough teachers, not enough materials, which means that poor kids overwhelmingly tend to stay poor. They don't get the same opportunities. You know, I was reading this, um, and we're going to be off again, off the rails a slightly bit, but I was reading this article uh, a couple of years ago in Vice uh, magazine, and they were talking about this very issue. Right? The, the difference between like the classes and things and, and using analogies. And one of the ones I thought they used was really great. And the analogy is you're at a carnival right? and you're, you're a rich kid. And the rich kid at the carnival, you can, you can throw as many darts as you want at the balloons, right? You've just got all the money you want. You can, you can just throw dart after dart after dart. And eventually you're going to hit a balloon and you're going to win a prize. And you're like, haha, look, I won a prize. It's great. Um, the middle class kids, can put a couple of dollars up there on the table and they'll get a few throws, right? Most of them miss. Most of them don't hit any balloons. 
but a few of them will, and they'll be like, aha, look, it worked, the system is great, I made it. The poor kids never get any throws because the poor kids are the ones working the carnival. They never get any chances, and that is on purpose, right? That's by design. When we decouple education from general funding and make it subject specifically to property taxes, wealthy neighborhoods get great schools, poor neighborhoods get bad schools. Over time, generationally, this means more of those wealthy kids get into better secondary educations and to university educations, and the poor kids end up in menial jobs and retail jobs. Those jobs are fine jobs, especially if everyone had UBI, if you want that job. But that's the only jobs available to them. And you know, I think that it's just it's just an absolute disaster from a, from a societal perspective. And and yet, when we advocate for policy and when we when we want to talk to Americans and help them understand, it's not useful really to speak like 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 a college educated person because most of the audience won't understand what you're saying right martin luther king had a really great great quote to me and, I, and it's one of the things that sticks in my head all the time and it really completely changed how i speak and he like he let it off with i want to speak in a way that's down to earth and that everybody can easily understand like that is it right that's the key if everybody can easily understand what you are saying then you're being an effective communicator because the point of communicating is to get the ideas in your head correctly enough out to somebody else so they can understand you right if and and if you want to do it in a way to the mass of people it has to be a way that's easy for everyone to understand it has to be a down-to-earth way of speaking and and this goes sort of with another quote that lives in my head too from einstein talking about the ability to know a subject matter if the only way you can explain something is to repeat what you've memorized by rote, then you don't understand what you're talking about. All you're doing is memorization. You need to understand the material so well that you can use your own words, using your own idioms to explain it in a very different way using no jargon. And if you can do that, then you understand the material. And if you can't, you don't. It was that simple. And it's like, holy crap. That's a brilliant insight. Speak in a way that's down to earth for everybody to easily understand using your own idioms about the thing you understand so they can understand. You don't got to memorize all that other junk. That's good in high school. Yeah, great. Yeah, 1057, Magna Carta, woohoo. When is the last time anyone asked me that question? Like, no time ever, but I know it's weirdly. So, you know, there's this kind of like practical knowledge that we're given in schooling in weird ways in this, uh, uh, that we're you know, not incentivized to use, right? We we, we don't have wood shop very much in class anymore. I used to live in Texas and they had 4-H clubs, which they still do in many places. But a lot of schools don't even know what 4-H is. Like they don't even understand that there's this whole other section of our economy, right? the, the agriculture sector, the rural sector. It, they, it's, it's become a really siloed, disjointed sort of society geared primarily from the ground up through education. And, you know, it's and it starts even before primary schooling, really, to you can get into these, you know, special kinder cares and Montessori education, which gives your kids head starts, you know, to get into other schools and to understand, I think, like really in a practical sense that, you know, America works in a very strange way. It's not a meritocracy in the least bit. It's really nepotistic, right? You got to know the people networking doesn't matter your qualifications. 
as we can see by many of our government officials who are completely incompetent and should no way have been in that job. Yet, you know, we're forced to deal with them. And because they're not elected, we can't recall them. We can't hold them accountable in the right way. And I think, too, right, this is kind of, and I'll, and I'll conclude on this uh, fascist thing for just a second, but I think this uh, holding people accountable is part and parcel of dealing with the fascist rise in our country, especially in organizations that we're in, when they infiltrate in. It's hard to hold people accountable, right? It, re it is. Even in, in a group where you can recall people, that's not an easy process. There's always emotions involved. It's arguing. It's contentious. And if you're volunteering your time, like you've worked your 40-hour your week, now you're in your volunteer role and you're going to give your time and effort and some toxic personality comes in and is trying to co-opt it or change it or whatever, it's very difficult to deal with it. But I think we have to. We owe it to ourselves. We owe it to the organizations that we're in to have the courage to have people yell at us <laughs> and tell us they don't like us and our ideas are stupid. It's like, that's okay. Say those words, but you don't belong in this group. And, you know, hold that firm line. And, you know, and I think one of the things too, and I, and I don't mean to be too calling out my colleagues in the Green Party, but I'm going to call them out slightly. I think many of my colleagues in the Green Party are actually conflict averse. And because you're looking for consensus, the party works on building consensus instead of direct voting, right? Consensus means that we're all going to agree on the way to move forward. So we don't have to have a vote. A vote is when we can't all agree and we have to take a vote up and down to see what we're going to do. But a vote means some people aren't in agreement, right? That's, that's the implication here. So because we're a party that works on building consensus, it feels many times that it's difficult to hold people accountable when their behavior is toxic. And unfortunately, that means that toxic Toxic people get into activist groups or political parties and have different agendas and can co-op the group, can co-op the message, or generally just like gum up the gears so much that it stops making any progress. And for leftist political groups and leftist organizations, we have to be mindful of that, right? We have to be aware of the disruptive tactics that like the government uses in particular. And I know it seems weird to talk about how well, you know, the government might be disrupting our groups because that's a little bit paranoid conspiracy-ish, except that we have a documented history of the government doing it. So, you know, it's like, <laughs> I don't want to feel paranoid. Is the government watching me? Yes. Yes, they are. Um, and we should operate like that. We should understand that the Green Party is the only anti-war electoral party in the United States. And as we're standing on the brink of World War III, there's going to be more and more specifically uh, politically guided disruption efforts towards our party because they don't want an uh, organized anti-war effort, right? That is not a thing that they want to have happening again. And so they need to keep us down. They need to keep us split. And they facilitate a lot of this kind of stuff by allowing fascist groups like the, the, the March on Charlottesville, which they knew was happening, to still proceed and go ahead. And they allow, right, like the, so as we probably know, the leader of the Proud Boys was arrested back in well, 2012, I guess, and was, and became an FBI informant f to the FBI for the, for the Proud Boys. And so they knew what was going to be coming from the Proud Boys organizing at the January 6th event, and they still didn't disrupt that from occurring, right, knowing full well. So, you know, I think it's, it's the case that there is an ideological 
understanding in some parts of the government that it can pit the left against the right and have us fight ourselves so the oligarchs can continue their extraction of wealth because look you know those folks on the right they're also poor <laughs> right they're also working class folks and they're getting their wealth stolen from them too i know that must make them feel bad because it makes me feel bad they're just blaming the wrong folks if they knew who was doing it to them maybe they'd be right at the mad people or the, the right people but it is you know they don't know and so i have sympathy for that i have sympathy for the fact that they've been subjected to the most sophisticated mass propaganda device in the history of the world which is the united states media unleashed upon us there used to be a law that there was no propaganda the government could you know subject its own citizens to in the united states that law was removed we're now subjected to military grade style propaganda just like any other country in wartime would be and we've it's not that we've fallen for it these are really sophisticated people who are really trained well and have a lot of money and funds to do this to the populace and of course it works that's why they do it it keeps the populace dumbed down turned on each other engaged in the, the sort of bread and circuses of of distraction right the and and the the overall destruction that that's going to do to us as a society can't be overstated the oligarchs don't care they they really do believe in a sort of egalitarian borderless world because they're super wealthy they can just go live wherever they want they can do whatever the the effects of climate change are going to be experienced by everybody on the planet but the ultra wealthy are not going to experience it in the same way that we are they're going to be able to be immune to most of it but we as the poor are going to suffer not just the the devastating effects of climate change in terms of weather patterns but also the devastating effects of climate change that comes in mass migrations because of starvation the increasing security degradation as people are pushing across borders and national governments respond poorly to that because they will and that hum, hum, human crisis after human crisis caused by an inability of the collective consciousness to grasp the existential threat that climate change is i think realistically and i know this is this is we're really off the rails on the fast here but they they have co-opted the climate change movement too right and now they're in the climate change part where they take over climate language where they say stuff like well there's too many people on the planet we can't feed them all that's obviously what the issue is if we just had you know half the people that would be that would fix the issue but of course that's not the problem at all we can feed more than enough people on our planet that's that's not the problem the problem is unchecked global capitalism you know uh and and it's easy to say it's like but it's it it is that we saw the panama papers nothing happened you know one person i think has been prosecuted for that um and then we saw what were the other papers gosh i forgot the next set of them but another set of of global elite hiding their money offshore oh my gosh it's all exposed nothing happened uh, we know who the people are we have all their names and it doesn't matter and you know i it's hard to to really look in the face of the ultra wealthy fueling and giving money 
to these right wing groups like things like Heritage Foundation and, you know, the Institute for Global War Studies and, and junk like that and not understand or not come to the conclusion that they're not just studying these issues, but they're helping to drive them, help set the narrative and the discourse on it. So, you know, we talk about, oh, climate change. Yeah, there are so many people. Wow, we got to reduce the population. That's Malthusian nonsense. We can feed everybody. Um, and really what that is code for, too, is like what we're seeing right now with COVID in, in this sense, right, which is broadly speaking, let's let the disabled die, right? Let's let the immunocompromised die. 98% of, of the United States right now is in a high risk category for COVID spread. Yet, if you go to look at the official map, you'll see tons of areas which are clear. But if you look at the wastewater data, that's where this 98% comes from, right? So there's a material reality, which the government is not talking about. And who's affected by this the most? The poor and working class who don't have adequate health care. So even if you get COVID, you can't get proper treatment for it. So you're likely to develop long COVID symptoms. And as we know, long COVID symptoms can make a person so disabled that they actually become qualified for official disability. We're looking at a historically wide global mass disabling event. No government on the planet is prepared for it. And so I think some governments have secretly concluded that they should just let it rip. And, you know, whoever lives, great. And the rest of us, they don't care about. I, as an immunocompromised person, I'm sure many of your listeners feel the same way. We've skipped weddings and funerals and birthdays and every single family thing and everything to be safe for ourselves and to keep our community safe. And I know for a fact that if we had Medicare for all, so many people who have COVID right now would be able to get proper medical care and not have it become detrimental for the long haul for them. And we don't, I, I just, it's so, these things are so intertwined, right? They're so connected up together. But in the end, they come down to these really base issues. People having enough money to pay for the things they want. People being able to have life of dignity, value, and worth, which is meaningful to them and provides edification to their soul. They're, we want to be happy and we don't want to suffer. That's the, the basic fact. And I think that everybody wants that. Everyone. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to be unhappy, right? There's no one going like, please punch me in the face with a stick. That's really great. Yet we often act as if the people on who are political opponents don't want those things. They, they want to suffer. Now, sometimes they want to make us suffer. Sure. But that's a different kind of thing. And I think that for understanding how the fascists have co-opted our movement and to take it back requires us to understand like what they are kind of trying to do here. Right. And that's a bit of a, of a tricky thing because none of us are Hannibal Lecter. We can't get in the brains of like the those guys. But there, there are some things that it's easy to understand because they talk about it a bunch. They just use a bunch of like code words. But one of the things they talk about in their conservatism, right? What are they trying to conserve? Well, broadly speaking, they're afraid. Right? They're afraid of losing their jobs or of losing their health care, of losing political majority of losing whatever it might be but they're afraid and so what they're trying to conserve is this sense of safety and and that's it so i think that when i have an opportunity to talk to them and i don't much but when i do what i like to say is stuff like i understand your feeling of not feeling safe i too don't feel safe I too feel the, the loss of my income. I too feel the loss of national security. I too want to feel safe, but 
you don't have a more safety in society by taking safety away from groups. You have more safety in society by extending safety to everybody. More safety for everybody means everybody feels more safe. And that means that every group is protected. Every group gets equity. Every group is protected in their abilities to have jobs and housing and access to health care and education. And the systemic discrimination is eliminated. And, you know, I think it's we have to get to a point if we're going to make change. And I think we, we will get here. I just don't think it's going to be a peaceful process. Um, but we're going to get to a point where the general polity recognizes these common qualities we all have in common and we're going to rise up from the from the uh i don't want to say ashes but rise up from the apathetic middle to finally not let the extremes of either side of the bell curve control what's going on i think using that bell curve model is really great right you've got 20 percent over here and 20 percent over here but here's this mass middle we can choose our destiny we don't have to and the other thing too you know all right, there were five candidates in the Republican primary, five of them. Well, there's only 20%. So Trump only got 18% of the candidate votes in the Republican primary, which meant like 3% of the, of the populace supported him, 3%. When, you, when, when it's cast as 50% of the country supports Trump because they're Republicans, it makes it feel like a vast amount of organized opposition. But that's not the case. It really, really isn't. They're a very small group. And the same thing for, for the Democrats too, right? Any of those candidates they get the same basic percentages. But numbers are weird for people. <laughs> we don't see it. And so we see, you know, over and over again where small minority groups are able to, to go in and co-opt the language of whatever group they're trying. In this case, the fascists coming and co-opting leftist, leftist language, right? They want to talk about uh, equality. They want to talk about women's rights or reproductive health care. But all of that is code. The, the only reason the right or the fascists care about reproductive health isn't because they care about reproductive health per se. They care about reproductive health for white women and white women only. And, and this goes back down to like they, they started writing about this stuff in the 80s. The, the population um, explosion or the, 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 the population crisis, right? And they they proposed several different solutions. There's a lot of great discussion about this kind of thing. But in the United States, there were three broad solutions that they came up with to address the, the dwindling populace of, of white people. Number one, they could pay women to have babies like some Eastern European countries were doing. This is back in the 80s. But they rejected that plan because that meant they would have to pay every woman to have babies. Right? Everyone who could have babies is going to have babies. They couldn't be um, selective. They could... Uh, encourage immigration, but that wouldn't be great for them either because that meant less white people and more people of non-white origins would be arriving in the United States, which wasn't what they wanted, right? That that wasn't the thing. So they concluded that what they had to do was make abortion illegal because at the time, and maybe the statistic still bears out, I'll have to, I'd have to double check, but at the time, the overwhelming majority of people who were accessing abortion health were white women. And so they figured the way to ensure the white populace uh, didn't decrease was to prevent white women from having abortions. But they couldn't just prevent white women, so they would prevent all women, and thus it is. And I gave a, a speech or a workshop in our annual national meeting uh, back in 21 
called uh, LGBTQI rights are the canary in the coal mine of human rights. And I was talking about the situation in Poland in particular and how the United States had, uh, I tracked a bunch of dark money from evangelical Christian groups over to uh, Eastern European political parties, in particular in Poland, the Law and Justice Party, and how uh, groups like the Heritage Foundation would write policies, give them whole cloth right to the Law and Justice Party in Poland who would try and enact them. Whenever yep. they didn't pass, they would send that back to the United States for reprocessing, and they were trying to get that was going through the uh, uh, Ordo Juris, which is um, the the Polish wing of the tradition and family, which is a far right wing oh, yeah. pro fascist uh, group on the right wing of the Catholic Church, and it. It, they're horrifying. Uh, if your listeners haven't checked into them, I, I wouldn't suggest go looking that up on Google because it's really, they're pretty terrible, but it, it's important to know. But those groups are not unique, right? Those, those groups are all over Europe and they're getting funded by dark money coming out of the United States, mostly from evangelical groups. And they're, the, the Scottish uh, Minister for Foreign Influence in European Politics specifically spoke as this was a threat to the European unity. And it hasn't changed, of course. The money flows there and then the policies flow back. And the, the thing in Poland is not terribly different than here, right? In, in, in the Polish iteration of their ultra-nationalist party, what makes somebody a good Pole is being Catholic, number one, and then basically being straight and having babies. And, you know, and it's connected intimately to their declining populace and their uh, work rate of percentage of people who are Polish by descent, proper Polish, uh, who have jobs in the economy. And it's decreasing significantly. And the same basic thing applies to the United States. Right? It's You have to have the right religious view. In this case, it's not Catholic, but it could be. But it's broadly Christian, more specifically evangelical, uh, maybe Baptist, maybe not, whatever, but it's evangelical Christian. Um, and you need to be white and, you know, you need to be an American, not uh, somebody from another country here. So that's what this group of ultra-nationalist Americans who are, I think, basically, they co-opted the Tea Party, maybe they started the Tea Party, and the Tea Party co-opted the Republicans, and now the Republicans are that, where you see people like, you know, Green out there on stage yelling, the Republican Party should be the party of Christian nationalists. Yo, that's some straight Nazi talk. And that is, I can't, like, it's hard to see this Republican Party being that because I watched them back when they weren't. And not that I ever thought they were great, but it's weird to see this descent into open, like, religious nationalism in a, in a party which heavily advocated for the separation of church and state and small government, right? There's no way you can become a Christian nationalist government and keep a small government that's antithetical to that. You have to grow the government to, to repress the populace. So it's so completely, it's like they've been co-opted too. They got co-opted by the far, far right. And I think that's an important understanding because there's a lot of people in our country, I think, who, well, like Nancy Pelosi, Right, saying stuff like we need a strong Republican Party and we need them to get back to the ways of the old. Like, like, yeah, sure, but that's not how things work. Things don't revert backwards; they keep progressing. Now they might progress to a point where every everything goes out of style and comes back into style. Right, bell bottoms, hooray! But we're not at that point, and so we're going. It feels very much like 
a a repeat of European history in the 30s where we're seeing a march by some political parties in the United States strongly to the right in an openly religious and nationalist perspective. I mean, I'm sure you saw the pictures of the Patriot Front folks marching through Boston. And other than wearing khaki pants and a stupid baseball cap, it looked just like a Nazi rally to me. And yeah, in, in Vermont, we had uh, one of the political candidates, Mark Quester. There was a person on his float flying a, the flag of the Spanish phalange. And um, that the, the float was also supporting one of the, the insurgent Republican uh, lieutenant governor uh, candidates. And he... A lot of these Republicans went to bat for this guy with the Falange flag. Uh, thankfully, Vermont still has some some uh, liberal Democrats left, and Joe Joe Benning actually called uh, called them out for having a Spanish Falange flag. But the editor of of the uh, right wing rag uh, Vermont Chronicle uh, was trying to say it was the anti communist Falange flag you know when and there was <laughs> some fascist trying to say that phalangism was different than na national socialism was different than fascism which is just to try to confuse confuse the issues i mean yeah right like like dark chocolate is different than milk chocolate but come on it's all chocolate so you know i get and you're right it is to obfuscate and confuse the issue right it is to and, and they make references to people of the past that and and things of the past that have lost their historical connections and meaning and so they make this reference to you know a spanish flag which in, most people don't know what means and like a, and a casual observer sees it and they might like wow that's a cool looking flag what is that about and this is on purpose like obviously designed to to entice and drive people into national socialist views because, you know, did, I don't know if you saw the, the show called The Boys, but it was on Amazon and it's a really interesting exposition about superheroes and stuff like that. But what if they became fascist? And one of the heroes, or I guess anti-heroes, God, it's hard to say. The show is now full of many heroes, even though it's about superheroes. Anyway, she is a former, I guess still, well, she was a superhero running around killing minorities and in the show she get, eventually is in the modern context and she's like you know everybody likes what i have to say they just don't like being called a nazi and i think that's the that's the thing that we're seeing right now a lot of these people on the right don't want to be called a nazi right they they really resist it they i'm not a nazi i'm not a fascist yet they advocate exactly for nazi views and fascist policies so it's just that they don't want to be called that and and so you know they they use all these other flags symbols words and terms which are all the same which all allude to the exact same philosophy but they're not flying a swastika right they're not even though you even though we see them even though we see in florida i i can't even believe it right in front of cpac literally nazi flags in the street and you know i think this gets this gets my blood boiling as a as an american veteran I'm very much against Nazis, uh, as every American veteran should be. As anyone who ever, everyone should be against Nazis anyway, whatever. But to, to see in my country here in this time, right, Nazi flags marching in the street, 
just goes to reinforce the point that I think many Americans have forgotten that during before America joined World War II, right, there was a Nazi party rally here in the United States, right, the American Nazi party in Madison Square Garden that was completely sold out, a sold out rally of Nazis in the United States. This Nazi party wasn't like then rounded up after we went to war with them and like put in prisons or anything like that. They just went about their business. So the Nazis in America never went away and we brought more Nazis here. So it's not surprising to me that we're dealing with a Nazi problem because of course we are. It's like, that's how you get ants. Do you want ants? That's how you get ants. So unfortunately for us, we're in a position now where the generations who came before us failed us in dealing with this issue. It's now left to us. And I am not the kind of person who wants to pass that on to the next generation. If I don't fix it, who will? And if not now, then when? And there's this kind of phrase, right, in like, I don't know, investing in lots of things. When's the best time to do something? Well, back then. When's the next best time? Right now. So the best time to fix the Nazi problem was back then. When's the next best time? Right now. So we got to fix it. We have to address it directly because if we don't, it's going to, we're going to be in a very low level, uh, what they call low intensity conflict, basically a guerrilla war where you have de facto empowered militia mobs by state governments who are uh, Christian nationalist fascists in uh, empowering not by, du jour, not through law, but just by you know de facto stuff, the vigilante mobs going out and as we see right now, attacking drag shows and performances going to libraries like doing they're not just a, like yelling at like the drag performer who's an adult and maybe the police out there they're yelling at the kids right they're yelling at these little kids like these kids don't know what any of this junk and here's these adult men smashing into these places angry yelling at them and these kids are freaking out of course as they would why would they not and these men are not non-violent they expressly show up with the intent to be violent and it's going to lead to that. There's no way it doesn't. It's going to lead to people being killed and that's just going to escalate. As a person who lives in the United States, I can't ever get away from the simple fact that Harvey Milk was assassinated. And, you know, I, and this is a weird kind of little anecdote, but I had to give a speech two weeks ago uh, at a Medicare for All march. And my friends were so concerned for me, they bought me a set of soft body armor, concealed armor so I could wear it. And I was like, well, look, it's just a Medicare for all march. I don't think it's going to be like that. Like, yeah, but like, look who you are. And as an openly, you know, queer politician, I guess I have to be more mindful of that. That's just the, the state of it. I don't think of it like that. I don't, I don't really conceive of, of that danger to myself in this, in this way. But that might just be Pollyannish on my part. And the the simple truth is that all around the country, it's not just something that's happening in traditionally red states, right? These are everywhere. In fact, in traditionally blue states, we're seeing this persistent rise of ultra-nationalist groups like the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys, uh, Patriot Front, all this kind of stuff. And they are co-opting the language of the left they are saying things like, you know, white men are the true and only repressed minority. Junk like that. I mean, it's farcical on its face. Yet 
so many people as we talk have this purposefully done to them less education that they don't understand they think that this is right they're like wow i am a white guy i am feeling oppressed i do feel unrepresented wow that's true and next thing you know you know they're they're members of this group and it's hard to get them out i think if this is like cultish behavior in a sense right and anyone who's ever dealt with somebody in a cult like you develop your own language to talk to your cult members and anyone outside the group the language is kind of like twilight language it's hidden it's obscured what it means uh it's it's kind of like the weird insult that the right has go and they're so bad at insults but go brandon right like that thing like oh my lord really like wow you left us who love Biden. sure must hate it when we say that and like everyone's like yeah no 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 that just well that's not even an insult like what is that but it's that kind of stuff that is coded language for them and over time like outside of their circle go brandon won't mean anything but inside their circle that's going to become a phrase a topic that if you know what it means you know what it means right now you're in you're in the know and I think this continues to present a problem for us in integrating and trying to to bring them back into the proper folds of society in the same way you do with any cult member. It takes deprogramming and, you know, broadly speaking, we don't have the time for that and people don't have the emotional energy for it. I really find it difficult to want to, you know, sit down in a comradely way and try and talk to people who want to kill me about why they shouldn't. Um, I think that. It's a valuable thing, and I think people who have the temperament for it should do it, but not everyone does. And so, you know, that it's going to be a problem. And when we see the kind of purposeful co-opting of the left movements by right-wing groups taking our words and our terms, and we're aware that the fact that the government will use disruption techniques against political objectives and targets like leftist political organizations then what we can conclude is not necessarily a uh, collusion between the two groups but definitely a coordinated working pattern of establishing a disruption of left politics and policies and a diminishing of most of our ideas and the ones they like a co-opting and adopting of so things like yeah, I, I, this is why I think you do see a lot of um, right-wing groups saying stuff like, yeah, climate change is bad, broadly, or not specifically, but like, you know, some parts of it are bad. Or you'll see things like, yeah, we should, we should uh, curtail gun ownership. But what they mean is curtail gun ownership for minorities, <laughs> right? Keep them out of their hands. Um, and, and they will say things like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Everyone should have a UBI except for people who aren't really American, who aren't really the right kind, right? So they do that kind of acceptance of some left policies, but they'll have these weird exclusions that they'll apply. Because even, even with uh, most liberals advocating for this stuff also have exclusions. Even me, when I was talking about having UBI, said all qualified citizens, because there's some who wouldn't be. Some who make way too much money, they don't need UBI. If you make over a million dollars a year, you shouldn't get it. If you're, if you're not an, a citizen, trickier, because I think that you can be in our country and not be a citizen perfectly fine. So do you qualify for UBI? Maybe. Uh, it's a, that's a political discussion to have, and I think it's a worthwhile one. Ultimately, I think the answer should be yes because America can afford it. 
And I think it's a matter of priorities. If we couldn't, then that would be a different discussion. And I want, and I, you know, my, other than the need act, which can mean that we could just buy what we want because we don't have to pay interest, right? We can, that's obviously great, but there's other more practical things too, right? As a green, I want to be concerned with saving the environment, saving the people and being less aggressive in our military. So I don't think that it's, strategically useful for the United States to have as many as many operating bases as we do and I to be and, and this is my go out on a limb the you know how on the internet they say what's your hot take that they will cancel you for this is my hot take they'll cancel me for I think one of the ways we pay for all this is we get rid of the Marines altogether they're just gone they're subsumed into the Navy now military friends let me tell you why when was the last time we did an amphibious invasion? Oh, that's right. Did I hear you say Korea? Uh-huh. You sure did. Okay. What do we do now? Oh, did I hear you say airdrops by the army? Oh, yeah, I sure did. Um, guess what we discovered? Uh, and this is a pretty um, bad sort of discussion, I guess, to get into in a sense, but in terms of like human cost and human suffering. So in the Iraq war, the United States obviously committed a vast ton of war crimes which were documented right sometimes by the military themselves on their war cams uh, and then hidden and then made available to us through the courage of people like chelsea manning and julian sanj over at wikileaks and so we could see it we could see the military shooting you know civilians in their cars we could we saw it we saw them talking hey there's kids there light them up right and and we know about fallujah we occupied Fallujah twice. The first occupation of Fallujah was done by the 1st Armored Division, which has heavy armor, i.e. M1 Abrams tanks. And when they occupied Fallujah, there was a low-level uprising, but nothing, nothing bad, really, in that sense. It, they rotate out, and the 1st Marine Expeditionary Unit takes their place, right? Rotation of military units. Now, the thing about the Marines is they don't have heavy armor. They have light armor. So when they came in to do the occupation, they weren't able to secure the zones in the same way that the heavy armor did. So it allowed an insurgency to blossom, which of course the American military has two ways to deal with it, win the hearts and minds. And if that fails, overwhelming firepower. So the Marines not able to be protected in their armor from the kind of small arms stuff that was happening had to resort to overwhelming firepower and started indiscriminately killing civilians. And so we get the war crime that is the entire occupation of Fallujah, the second occupation. The real military lesson learned here is that if you occupy areas, you need to do it with heavy armor so that this kind of insurgency doesn't happen, which means that the civilian population in general isn't destroyed because the insurgents don't care either. That's the thing. It's not like they're trying to protect the civilians. This is both sides just killing civilians. As a person who doesn't want to kill anybody, I, I there's a lot to say about it. We shouldn't have been in Iraq to begin with. But once we're there, we have an ethical duty to not harm the civilians and do our to do the least damage possible. And so that means that you have to militarily plan for this properly. Thus it is that the Marines have no particular use in our military any longer. We don't do amphibious landings. We do special operations with the aircraft, which are run by the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army. And 
the Marines have a vast budget and they have bases all over and military equipment just like everybody else. Eliminating the Marines eliminates a huge source of pollution, eliminates a vast budget hole that we are money that we don't have to be spending on our military. We bring a disjointed service back together under a unified service as the Navy. And overall, it creates a stronger, more strategic military structure. And I know for a lot of leftists, that's not a big deal. Um, you know, but as a politician concerned for my whole country, that's the thing I, I have to kind of think about, right? Like I need to bridge these divides in some way, but I want to do it in a way which is beneficial for all of us. I yeah, I'm appreciative of the service the Marines did historically, but the times have changed, right? Times have changed so much. We have a space force. That's how much times have changed. We don't need Marines. We've got a space force. I don't know what to say. Now we got space Marines, I guess. So that's the thing. And you know, I, so there is a tendency, I think for many people, right? It's the whole, an object in re at rest tends to stay at rest an object in motion, you know, will stay in motion unless acted on by an equal opposite force. So in many cases, I think our political views are at rest, right? They've kind of solidified and we're like, this is just the way it is, but it isn't, it hasn't been that way for very long. We can change it. Uh, and I, you know, I keep, there's a lot of quotes that run around in my head, but one of the things about like entrenched systems and we can't change it is the Ursula Le Guin quote about the divinity of kings. And for most of human history, that seemed like something that was not changeable until one day it was. <laughs> and then we changed it. And now we don't think kings are divine. None of that is, right? And the same way that capitalism looks like a system that can't be changed, it hasn't been around that long. And we can completely change it. We have the tools at our disposal and we're getting enough people who are waking up to the real challenges to want to do something about it, willing to take the risks, willing to take the chance to say, you know, this is worth saving. This being our, our climate or the, the forests I can go walking in right now. Those are pretty great. I'd like to save that. I just read a report today that says no rainwater on the earth at all is safe for drinking now. I can't just open my mouth and have it fall in there and drink some water. I have to filter it. This is horrifying news to me, horrifying. And yet not at all surprising because what would you expect with the con continued pollution of our atmosphere, with the continued degradation of our waterways, what would we expect? And it's the same thing with the Nazis. It's the same thing with the far right. If we don't do something about it, they don't just go away. They metastasize, they become a problem that demands eventually our attention. They, it requires us to focus on it and fix it. And unfortunately for us, I think we are the group of people who the can got kicked down the road to for a long time, right? Like, let's just kick it on down and we'll deal with it later. And now that's us. I don't want to kick it to my kids, right? I don't want to kick it to my grandkids. I think that's junky. I think that's the kind of thing that people who are feckless leaders do. I think it's the kind of thing that people who are possessed of a sort of internal timidness kind of go for, right? It's easy to go along. It's easy to be submissively conformist. We're taught, oh, don't be the nail that sticks up because the hammer will hammer you down. Uh, well, that's what nails are for. They're supposed to be hammered down, right? That's what they, that's what they do. Uh, so don't be afraid of being a nail. Right. Stick up, get hammered down and hold something in place. that's supposed to be in place. that's supposed to be there. I think that it's we have nothing really to lose anymore. We, we're facing, 
you know, and, and the, the whole climate change thing, I know it doesn't seem it's so such a small number, right? Two degrees, two degrees Celsius. How can two degrees Celsius make such a big change? It just, for most people, like a two, like two, going from one to three doesn't seem like much, <laughs> right? So they don't, they don't really understand what that means. And we have roughly 930 days if we don't take drastic action until we cross the two degrees centigrade threshold. We're at 1.3 right now. And once we do that, we've crossed the tipping point where we don't come back from that. That's now the new normal. And the new normal is, well, record heat waves, record level hurricanes and tornadoes in places where they never occurred before. You see them all over. I, there's a, a thing called a, which is obviously a really cool weather formation, a thing called a Derrico, which is like these really massive storms in the plains of the United States, right? Did you see the one from North, from South Dakota or North Dakota? I guess it was a couple of months ago. The sky is green. It's an emerald green. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, and it, the fact that we're looking at what looks to be like sci-fi worlds, that their skies and opening up how this doesn't motivate people to be like putting climate change on as their number one issue. Like how could, how could, when you look exactly, at Americans. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, I've seen it, Derrico, and it's, it's absolutely um, ter terrifying. And uh, at that, we've been going for about two hours. So I'm, we're going to have to start wrapping up. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. I have a lot. You know, I appreciate the time to speak, but no, I, I mean, I'd, lo I'd love to have you uh, <laughs> get you on again to talk some more. But we, you know, our listeners have a certain um, amount of <laughs> listening they can do. So yeah. before we uh, wrap up, is there anything you want to plug uh, in short? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say this. Um there's absolutely nothing to lose to take a chance on a green vision of the future. I'm not suggesting that people like commit 100% for the rest of their life to the Green Party. I'm suggesting that if they committed to one election cycle, one election cycle in 2024, if everybody right now who thinks that their vote doesn't matter would vote, and I'm not talking about presidential election, I'm talking grassroots stuff, city commissioner, county com insurance commissioner, uh, school board, uh, forestry manager, all these state level offices that actually control the material day-to-day -day life of citizens are impacted by single votes, by four votes, by five votes. Your vote matters. And voting green, voting for candidates who support the policies you want, rather than voting for candidates or voting against candidates because they have policies you fear is a better bet. You should vote for what you want. If you vote for, like, like Eugene Deb said, I'd rather vote for what I want and not get it than to vote for what I don't want and get it. And that's the simple fact. So I guess if I had one thing to plug, I would say, please vote. Your vote does matter. It matters really, really specifically, one vote changes elections here and there at the grassroots level, which is where the Greens operate. We want to run grassroots candidates. We think you should run for school board, school commissioner, county commission, mayor, whatever it might be, because those things impact our lives far more, I think, than people realize and far more than 
nebulous entities at the national level. You want to know where why your taxes are so high? That's the school board. You want to lower them? Get elected. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for uh, your time. This has been Margaret Elizabeth, the co-chair of the Green Party Lavender Caucus and the co-chair of the Green Party of the U.S. and a co-chair. This has been Vermont Movement News, Volume 3, Episode 5. We will hopefully be going back to talking to educators next, but this has been a wonderful respite and an education in and of itself.